the Lord. Um, we're going to take a, l- a little bit, just a little bit of a deep dive this morning into something that's mentioned here. Uh, and we're, if you need notes later, like if we go too fast, uh, let me know. I'll find a way to make them presentable to give to you. But we're going to do a little bit of a deep dive this morning. Um, because when I first started reading the Bible, one of the things, like, I had no experience with Christianity. I didn't know anything. I didn't know anything about the Bible. And I noticed that it's got these little letters, right? So, like, uh, into verse 21, it's got this little C in my Bible. So I was like, oh, what's that? So I look it up, and it says, oh, it refers back to this thing. And so I go, and I look at that thing. And I was like, oh, my goodness. Like, the Bible talks about itself all over the place. So I found this handy chart, which I didn't format the right way. Brad, I didn't follow your instructions. Uh, anyway, it's a really good chart. Um, it, it's kind of hard to see, even if it was in the right way, because I can see it the right way in the back. Um, sorry, I made a lot of noise there. Uh, it looks kind of interesting, but if you look, uh, it goes straight down. All right, you see the big purple line? That purple line goes from Psalms to Hebrews. And that tells us how many times the book of Hebrews talks about the book of Psalms. It also goes over and it talks about Jeremiah. Uh, the book of John, we're seeing how it talks about Hebrews. We're seeing all these cross connections. There are thousands upon thousands upon thousands of cross references within the Bible. And, and it's absolutely amazing because what that's telling us is that at, God kept this unified story all the way throughout. But it's also telling us that, that so much of what we read in the New Testament really is drawn from the Old Testament. Which should make sense because when we read in Colossians, it says that these things were a shadow of what was to come. Romans later on is going to talk about how these things were written for our understanding. These things are really important. And when we start to look actually at the original languages, we see even more crossover and connection with them. And it just gets deeper and deeper and deeper. And the more we understand what the thing was, we understand what the fulfillment is. Now, the, the Old Testament was originally written in Hebrew and Aramaic, but there was a Greek version of it because so many Jews uh, were living outside of Jerusalem. They were living outside of Israel. They were in Rome or somewhere else, and they didn't actually know how to speak Hebrew, so they made a Greek translation of it. That's important because here in verse 25, there's an interesting word that shows up in the Greek. It's called hilasterion. And this word's interesting because most translations will say propitiation. And I'm glad my Bible doesn't because I have a hard time saying that word. Instead, the CSB translates it mercy seat. That's important because of Exodus 25. First verse 16 and 17 and then verse 22. Put the tablets of the testimony that I will give you into the ark. Make a mercy seat of pure gold. 45 inches long and 27 inches wide. And then verse 22, God says, I will meet you there above the mercy seat, between the two cherubim that cover the ark of the testimony. I will speak to you from there about all that I have commanded you regarding the Israelites. This word, mercy seat, one word in the Greek is used there, and it's used here in verse 25 in Romans. God presented him as the mercy seat by his blood through faith. So what happened was God gave the Ten Commandments. We talked about that a little bit last week. In the Ten Commandments, the summarization of the law, the beginning of what we're supposed to understand on how to relate to God and how to relate to people, he took that and he put it inside the ark. The ark is the gold box, and this ark was wherever it was to go. That's where God was saying, that's where my glory will rest. And then he, makes the, uh, he gives the uh, 
instructions on how to build a tabernacle. And inside the tabernacle, where they would carry it around in the desert with them, in the very center was the Holy of Holies, the most holy place on the entire earth, because God chose to manifest his presence there. This was really, really important to the Israelites. Every year on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, the priest would make atonement for himself and for his family. And then he would make atonement for the people. Among other things, he would take two goats. One goat they would lay hands on and they would confess their sins and the sins of the people and then they would send that goat away. And that's where we get the term scapegoat. The other goat they would kill. And the, the, the priest would go into the temple after making purification for himself and making sure that he was right before God would sprinkle blood on the mercy seat. And God would forgive the people for another year. If they wanted to be right with God, if the people wanted to have a right relationship with God, this is how it worked. This is what was needed. This is how you approached God. And you didn't approach God. The high priest did it on your behalf. It was very rare that God would just speak to an individual within the community. It was done in an order, in certain ways. This is how you were justified. If you wanted to be justified, if you wanted to be right with God, you needed certain things. You needed a priest. You needed someone who could intercede to God on your behalf. You needed a tabernacle with all of its rules and its very specific measurements and colors and designs, and it had to be set up a certain way and taken down a certain way. It had to be carried a certain way. Uh, it, when we're reading about David, we see that he went and tried to bring the ark from one place to another, and it started to slip, and a guy went to grab it, and he died. Very specific rules on how to handle these things. Sorry, that was the ark, but still. The Holy of Holies, you had to have the innermost part this, this very important sanctuary. Again, the most sacred place on the entire earth because God, who can't be put in a box, chose to manifest his presence there. And he needed the ark. You had to have the Ten Commandments inside. You had to have the, the mercy seat on top. You had to have all of these things if you wanted to be right with God. The importance of the mercy seat cannot be overstated. It was literally God's throne on the earth. This is how he chose to interact with people. But now, everything changes. That's why that word, hilasterion, is so important. Because Romans chapter 3, verse 25, 26, God presented him as a mercy seat by his blood, through faith to demonstrate his righteousness, because in his restraint, God passed over the sins previously committed. God presented him to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and justify the one who has faith in Jesus. Everything changes because of Jesus' sacrifice. We no longer need a priest to intercede for us. We who confess that Jesus is the Messiah become his priest on earth. We call this the kingdom, or the priesthood of all believers. It comes from 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession, so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We don't need the tabernacle anymore because we now, as individuals, and corporately become the tabernacle of God, just like Jesus came and tabernacled, it says in John chapter 1, or dwelt with us, we now are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 18 through 20. Flee sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the person who is sexually immoral sins against his own body. Don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you from God? You're 
not your own. You were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. We carry around God with us everywhere we go. We're not looking for a temple or a tabernacle to be brought to us. We bring Jesus with us wherever we go. The Holy of Holies, we had to have this sacred, special place, but that doesn't exist anymore. Because of Jesus, we have direct access to the Father. When Jesus died on the cross, it says the veil was torn. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19 says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have boldness to enter the sanctuary through the blood of Jesus. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16, Therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in time of need. The Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat, Jesus is our atonement. He became the mercy seat. He fulfilled the law. Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, don't think that I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. 1 John chapter 2, verse 2 says, he himself is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the whole world. The punishment was put on Jesus. Jesus' sacrifice was so complete that it was a one and done. No longer is there annual atonement that has to be made. No longer do you have to do certain things in order to have God forgive you. You get to come straight to him. And because Jesus is the mercy seat, you receive mercy in your time of need. It's amazing. This is why it's so important to understand some of the things that's talked about in the Old Testament. Because when we talk about them, when we read them, when we see them, and then we see that Jesus is the fulfillment of this, we see what the requirement was in order to receive justification. We see, again, not only who we were and who God is, we see what is required of us. And then we see how we couldn't do it. And we see how Jesus completes it. See, God set the pattern. He made the rules. He said, if you want to be right, if you want to be justified, if you want to be righteous in my sight, do this. Because this will make you perfect. And we go, I can't. And he goes, I know. That's still what's required to make you perfect, so I'm going to do it. God sets the pattern, then he keeps it himself. Jesus, who is fully God and fully man, is the only one who could have done what was needed. He kept the law in a way that we couldn't and fulfilled it in a way that we didn't want to. 1 John 1, verse 9, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Because of what Jesus did, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us. Another translation says he is just forgive us it is right for god to forgive us he has again set the terms of the relationship he fulfilled the terms of the relationship so now when we come to him in repentance and say jesus i need you i need your mercy god is right in doing it even when we don't feel it even when we've messed up in a new way that we've created and we're like wow i just really took that one to another level And we say, Jesus, I'm sorry. He's right to forgive us. And we do nothing to deserve it. And that's what this section's talking about. God is just in forgiving us because Jesus became our mercy seat. We do nothing to earn it. That's why Paul goes on and says, 
where then is boasting? It's excluded. We don't do anything to deserve it. He just gives it to us in access through Jesus. Jesus tells a good story before his death that I think really helps illustrate this point. It's a big chunk of scripture. We're going to read it. Luke chapter 15, verses 11 through 32. You're probably familiar with this story. He, Jesus also said, the man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate I have coming to me. So he distributed the assets to them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and traveled to a distant country where he squandered his estate in foolish living. After he had spent everything, a severe famine struck that country and he had nothing. Then he went to work for one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the field to feed pigs. He longed to eat the fill from the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one would give him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired workers have more than enough food? And here I am dying of hunger. I'll get up, go to my father and say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your sons, your son, make me like one of your hired workers. So he got up and went to his father, but while he was still but while the son was still a long way off, the father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran and threw his arms around his neck and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father told his servants, quick, bring out the best robe, put it on him, put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Then bring a fattened calf and slaughter it. Let's celebrate the feast because this son of mine who is dead is alive again. He was lost and he is found. So they began to celebrate. Now his, the, his older son was in the field, and when he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he summoned one of the servants, questioning what these things meant. Your brother is here, he told them, and your father has slaughtered the fattened calf because he has brought him back safe and sound. Then he became angry and didn't want to go in. So his father came out and pleaded with him, but he replied to his father, Look, I have been, I've been slaving many years for you, and I have never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me a goat that I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours comes home who has devoured your assets with prostitutes, you slaughter a fattened calf for him? Son, he said to him, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. We call this story the prodigal son or the lost son, but I really, if I could petition, I would change the name to the heart of the father. Because this story tells us so much more about the father than it does either one of the sons. There's two sons. One is wasteful and he blows his inheritance while his father is still alive and then comes back and is ready to plead to be a slave. And the father just treats him with and welcomes him with open arms. The other son is aggressive and frustrated because he's always done what he's supposed to do. I've never been like this son of yours who squandered everything. And you never did this for me. And the father responds, you could have done whatever, whenever. The father and his love are the central points to this story because that's not how it should have happened. Even in our own world today, we can think of ways that we would treat a son of ours who would do such a thing. The Jewish people at the time had actually a system in place for what should be done for a son like this. That when the, if a son came back and he lost an inheritance among the Gentiles and then returned home, the community would perform a ceremony called the kazah. They would break a large pot in front of him and yell, 
yell. Just look it up. Jesus would yell. It says yell. Okay? He would yell, you are now cut off from your people. The community would totally reject him. They would take a large pot. Everybody would gather around. They would place this disobedient, reckless son in front of the entire community, smash the pot and say, you are cut off from our community. Just like this pot cannot be put back together, you cannot come back into this community. You have disgraced your family. You have disgraced your father. You have disgraced our God by defiling yourselves in front of Gentiles. That is what was supposed to happen to him. He was supposed to be an outcast, a beggar, wanting for food in hopes that somebody would have just a little bit of pity and mercy on him. That was what was supposed to happen. He was supposed to walk and live in shame. But the father took the shame instead. If we just read this with our own, our own context and understanding, we won't understand. The father took shame by running to the son. Grown men did not run. That was for children. They're not running anywhere. You know why, too? Because they didn't wear pants, right? They wore tunics, dresses. He would have to hike up his tunic bare his legs to the community, and then run. Two shameful acts back to back. He took the shame upon himself so his son did not have to experience. This is why we have no place to boast. The younger son did not receive the shame he was supposed to have. The older son thinks, well, I didn't do any of that. I've earned my keep. But the father says to him too, Everything I have is yours. You could have done anything you wanted at any point. Both sons had it wrong. Both sons didn't see who the father really was, generous and loving and giving and compassionate and willing to take the shame of a community onto himself so that one doesn't experience it and willing to give the other one whatever he wanted. If we read back in this, in the beginning, it says he divided the assets and gave it to them. He had everything, and he was more obsessed with what this son, his, his brother did. This speaks to us who so often, so often, maybe not you, maybe I'm the only one. I'll take that if it's the case, but so often think I've got to earn it. Okay, I, I, yes, Jesus, you let me in, and you've done all these things, but now it's my responsibility. It's time for me to man up and make some things happen. To that God says, no, no, come in and celebrate with me. It doesn't matter where we are on this spectrum. We get no place for boasting because Jesus became the mercy seat for us. He became the thing that required sacrifice on our behalf. So it doesn't matter which son we were, and it doesn't matter how often we turn into the older brother who's like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make this happen. I'm going to do this. I'll take care of it. And then we start casting judgment on those who aren't there yet because, again, we create broken systems and then get upset when they don't work. And God says, no, Jesus is the mercy seat. Remember, part of what the mercy seat was was the throne of God. 
we know where Jesus is now? On the throne. We see Jesus get up two times from his throne in the New Testament. Two times. One, at the martyrdom of Stephen. It says Jesus stood. The next time we see Jesus get up, it's not going to go so well for some people. But right now, he's on the mercy seat. And I think if we can get a really good understanding of what it means for Jesus to be seated on his throne, it will change the way we will interact with him, and it will change the way we approach him. Wait, can you bring me that chair? I just had a thought. Oh, come on up here. Come here. Come here. Come. You should have said no. Right in front of the camera. I want everybody to have a seat. Okay? Yeah, facing you. Wage Jesus. <laughs> Limited time only. This doesn't apply when he gets home. Yeah, right? Jesus is on his throne. He is on the mercy seat. We approach him like this so often, looking down on him. That is not how you approach a king. This is not how we should approach Jesus. He is sitting because he's done it all. He has no need to stand up right now. He is confident in his ability to sustain the universe right where he is. We approach him like this, though, and wonder why he's not doing anything for us. How many societies, if you look at history, do you approach a king like this? You don't. We approach the king on our knees. He's on the throne. We're on the floor. Now, I get it. Some of us are really broken. If I tried to stand up right now, it's going to take me a minute. I'm going to lean over. Wade's going to have to be Jesus. Stand up and help me up. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate you. No, no, the chair can stay. Why do we do that? Because we turn into the older son. Or because we think that, well, I'm in now, so I can do what I want. No, we still have no place for boasting. Our job, our, our role, our position is constantly, I'm going to have to call you again, down on our knees. Whether physically or, or spiritually or emotionally is to get down low before the king because we have no place of boasting before him. We do not, we come in boldly. Right, the Bible, like we read in Hebrews, we come in boldly to the throne room to get on our knees and to ask for help and mercy in our time of need. There's no place to boast in. You can't boast on your knees. You can't boast while you're bowing. So we don't worry about it. All the prayers that we pray, all the things that we're asking God for, when we're doing it, this week my wife and I have had a bunch of big prayers, a bunch of big prayers, but they end with, you know what, though, Jesus, this is what I want. This is what I think is best. If I was in control, this is what I would do. But you're in control. And if you say no, that's okay. I'll be disappointed for a minute or three but it's okay because you're in control. That's your throne. 
not mine. This is why it's good that Jesus is our mercy seat and that we don't have to go through all that anymore. That time's over. Now we come boldly to the throne room, get on our knees and say, Lord, what would you have me do? The band can come up and uh, we can have our prayer team come up. Look at that, I didn't have my back. I was worried there for a second. I want to encourage you this morning to, to think about that, to think about what was required, what you had to do if you wanted justification, if you wanted to be right before God, and that all of that has changed now, and all you have to do is approach Jesus. If you need prayer, you can come up for prayer. We'll have some people up front, some people in the back. Lord Jesus, I thank you for this morning. I thank you that you are on your throne. Jesus, you are on your throne. Lord, help me. Help all of us remember that. Help us remember that you are content right where you are because you've already done it all. There's nothing left for you to do. Help us see you rightly. Jesus, give us a vision this morning and this week of you on your throne, seated where you belong, and in understanding that, give us a, a deep conviction of understanding what it means for you to be Lord and on your throne, that we can then come and bring everything to you. And it gives us no place for boasting, but submission. desire to see you move in us and through us and in our communities. Show yourself to be who you are, Lord. And help us carry that message with us. Amen. Respond as the Lord leads you.